In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today. Help us to really get into some of the details of the history of the church so that we can better understand what it is that you want us to understand and think about what the church is. It is a vehicle to heaven. It is the gateway to heaven. But we often lose sight of that because we take it so much for granted. So help us again then to better understand your role and our role. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Uh, a number of uh, new people have come in, so I want to welcome them and to welcome all of you back. Uh, at least I see that I didn't scare you away last week with uh, some of the little problems we had to begin with and then the overrun of details and so forth. We want to do something of that again today in a way. One of the things I want you to know that when you put a comment on this registration form, I read those. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to just go over a couple of them because I found them rather interesting. I won't use any names, all right? Uh, but one person said that they have not had any previous uh, Bible study uh, education or involvement, and so they are, quote, unquote, a blank slate, meaning that, you know, their mind is open, which is good. Their mind is open to accepting. you just got to be careful, because one of the things that I just had a conversation with a few minutes ago when you're watching something that is produced by Hollywood, be on guard, because most of it, well, a good portion of it, let's say, is erroneous as far as Catholic education is concerned. Uh, <coughs> and so you have to be extremely careful when you w watch Hollywood's version of any biblical story. Uh, so the, the idea of being a blank slate, to me, is not a criticism. It's just saying that the person is open to really wanting to understand. The other comment that I kind of run across several times in here was, when did the Catholic Church start? And... I thought we'd mentioned that last week, but obviously what these people are thinking of when they say, when did the Catholic Church start? They're probably looking for some big expose or some big ceremony, like when a new restaurant is open or when a, a new store is open or some building is just uh, open after construction. And there's a big uh, celebration and a lot of uh, balloons and maybe Klieg lights and so forth and so on. None of that. None of that whatsoever. Let's go back a little bit in time 
to the time when Christ was here. Remember when he would work miracles. He would heal people. He would uh, do all kinds of things. He raised people from the dead. He did that three times. And each time, uh, another time I remember is when he uh, the experience of the three apostles on the mountain when the transfiguration took place. And when they are coming down, he said, tell no man about that until after the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. And after each of miracles, I think, have you ever wondered why? Why did Christ not want anybody to talk about it? Because he didn't want to be known as a miracle worker. He didn't want to be known as somebody that could multiply a little bit of loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 people. He didn't want to be, you know, a spectator or a, a spectacle, I should have said, um, so that people would admire his powers. And the idea of waiting till after he died and rose from the dead he wanted to be known as God. And he wanted to be people to respond to him through love, not through any great exposition of power and majesty and so forth and so on, but as love. And how can we develop that love if we do not have a personal relationship with Christ? A one-on-one -on -one relationship. And I'm talking about when you pray, don't just rattle our fathers and Hail Marys over and over and over thinking that that's going to help. It's not, I'm not going to condemn any of that. Uh, but that is not developing a personal relationship with Christ. During your prayer time, you should think of Christ sitting across from you or near you or next to you and you're speaking to him directly. Address your prayers to him. If they are not <clears throat> meaningful to you except by reading the words, then they're not going to be meaningful in developing a relationship. Think about your relationship with your spouse. If you didn't talk to your spouse except on Sundays, I don't think you would last very long. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and if you only uttered certain words that were printed in a book, I don't think that would help. Treat Christ as a dear beloved friend, not as somebody on the cross or somebody to be worshipped or like a statue. Treat him as somebody that is present in front of you. That's what he wants. Now, getting back to the beginning of the church, the church really is something like a tree. It had its roots. Every tree has to have roots, one way or the other. All right. 
Some have roots that go way out, and some have roots that go way down. Nevertheless, the church has to have roots. This is what we call Judaism. The church is an extension of Jesus Christ and his plan of salvation. So the Judaism isn't something that was then and now obsolete and gone and so forth. Judaism was very important to the development of God's plan of salvation. And so we have roots that were in Judaism. And Judaism could only take God's plan of salvation so far. It could not take it beyond that particular point. And that point is of needing a sacrifice that was perfect enough to satisfy the sins of all mankind before Christ, during that time period, and from there on till the end of time. The only thing that could satisfy that is an ultimate perfect sacrifice, and mankind had nothing of that kind to offer, and therefore God himself had to give us that sacrifice in the form of himself, in the form of the third, per the second person of the Blessed Trinity, Jesus Christ. And that is what is actually happening here to form what we look upon as the church, but it is an extension of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said he would be with us forever. And that is why we call the church the body of Christ, because we are the working arms and hands and feet and voice of the church of Christ on earth. And if you're not part of that, I've had people say, well, I'm uh, a good Catholic and I go to church and I want to keep that private. I don't want to bother with anybody else and I don't want them to bother with me. You are not doing what Christ has asked us to do. The church is really the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. And because of that, there was no great ceremony in the coming out of the church, with one exception. And that is, on the first Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Christ's death on the cross, which was a Jewish holiday, not a holy day, but a holiday. And there were lots of people in Jerusalem celebrating the holiday. And remember, after the crucifixion of Christ, the apostles and uh, those few people that uh, accepted Christ while he was living sort of were gathered in what was called the upper room, the same room in which the Last Supper was held. And they were cringing because they were all afraid that eventually the Romans or the Jewish uh, officials would come after them and crucify them as well. 
So they were huddled, huddled there, sort of together, praying that that wouldn't happen. And what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes down upon all of them in tongues of fire. And in the process of the Holy Spirit entering the hearts and minds of each of these people, they become emboldened to go out then and preach and teach and talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is all in the Acts of the Apostles, so, you know, it's not something I made up just to satisfy uh, a few questions uh, on these registration forms. It's all in the Acts of the Apostles, and I would uh, suggest that you try reading the Acts of the Apostles. Somebody, well, a couple people last week after the class recommended that there be some uh, required reading or recommended reading. Well, it's a little difficult when you're going through 2,000 years of, of history. Uh, I don't think uh, many of you would want to read all of this, although I think it's a great book, and I would recommend it highly. But if you read the Acts of the Apostles from that point of view, as well as some of Paul's letters, particularly Corinthians, uh, Galatians, and Romans. Romans is probably the first uh, great theology of the church. And you can learn so much of the early church by it, particularly the Acts of the Apostles. Thank God that St. Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, or we would have no records of what was going on in the first 20 or 30 years. But it's important uh, for us to kind of get all of this straight. So that's why I wrote uh, this out here, because I'd like you to spend some time. Uh, I would like to read it right now and go over it in detail, but I'd also like to have you read it at home and give it some time to sink in, okay? Let's see if all of you take the handout for this morning. The Catholic Church and Catholicism, which were the same at the same time in the beginning, had its beginning in Judaism, or you might say its roots. Just as a baby needs nine months within the mother's womb, Catholicism needed 2,000 years of preparation to develop within Judaism its foundational philosophy and theology. And we still use much of its scriptures because they are just as meaningful today as they were 2,000 years ago. And that is why we should never put down the Jews. Unfortunately, most of the Jews today uh, Judaism has become more of a cultural phenomenon rather than a religious uh, concept. Although, uh, just by coincidence, today is the feast of Yom Kippur. You know what Yom Kippur is all about? All right. Yes, sir. Day of the Day of Atonement. Yes. It's very much like our uh, Good Friday, but not for the same reasons. All right. Uh, but nevertheless, it's the highest holy day of uh, the Jewish year. And if you meet or 
know any Jewish friends, do not say happy Yom Kippur. <laughs> that would be like saying happy Good Friday. But in a way, for us, Good Friday was a blessing because without it, there would never have been the sacrifice that I was just talking about. All right. Yom Kippur is uh, an entirely different situation, but similar to Good Friday. Uh, the coming out of the church on the first Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after the death of Jesus Christ, was not marked by any great celebration, at least as far as the general public was concerned. But it was marked by the noticeable act of the, the first noticeable act of the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit uh, came down in tongues of fire, the cowardly apostles were cowardly no longer. Rather, they were bold in wanting to share what they knew about Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. This is important, and I want you to spend a few minutes in discussing the role of the Holy Spirit and his uh, continuing operation and protection within the church. If you drop down to the second part of this, it's important that we understand the role of the Holy Spirit because we will see the Holy Spirit's action and involvement in the development and the protection of the church uh, throughout the whole 2,000 years. Have any of you ever noticed the little uh, stained glass window up in the back of the church over the entrance? Uh, it is a copy of the dove that represents the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the God of the third part. If you go back to your circular diagram in last week's uh, handout, in this one, the Holy Spirit is the guardian of the church. And his role is to take the accomplishments that were completed by the Father and the Son and now take those and help each individual through the church to get to heaven. So we have many graces and blessings. Last week we talked a great deal about uh, the devil's influence, evil's influence. And what God has given us is not only the Holy Spirit, but the church and the sacraments to help us ward off and guard against the evils of the Holy Spirit. Well, we have to take all of that serious. Unfortunately, so many people have become so blasé about it uh, that... Um, they discount it because it's a little too easy, it's a little too common. They're looking for something more difficult. Uh, so the Holy Spirit's role is really important. Another thing that we talked about last week, but I think, again, many people uh, didn't really get the message, was the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., 
But if we go back before that, um, talking about the Holy Spirit, remember on the day that Christ died, the veil of the temple, the veil of the temple which hid the Holy of Holies from all of the general public, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies once a year, and that would be today, on the Day of Atonement. All right, uh, But the Holy of Holies was covered by a great veil, and that veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, the veil was 15 cubits high, and a cubit is approximately 18 inches, or the distance between the funny bone here to the tip of the fingers, about 18 inches. That's the way they measured it. And that would mean that that uh, veil would have been somewhere around uh, 15 to 18 feet high. Now, if you're going to tear something that high, you'd have to almost start at the bottom, would you not? because of it being so high up. But the veil, according to uh, Scripture, tells us, and actually the apostles again, that this was torn from top to bottom, which means it was God's way of saying that the covenant with Judaism, or the covenant through Judaism with the Jewish people, was now null and void because they did not keep it. And that is why it is important. Then I've often had people say, well, uh, if that happened on the day Christ died, why did it take 40 years for the destruction of the temple? That is, the arrest of the temple. Okay. And the only answer that I can give is that 40 years, the biblical 40 years, you know, that you see so often throughout, particularly the Old Testament, was the time that God had given the Jews to try to wake up and accept Christ. But when they didn't, and the temple was being used for personal pride reasons rather than for uh, worship, the temple was then destroyed by the Romans. God permitted that as a sign of his final um, shifting from the Jewish people to those who followed Jesus Christ. And when I say followed Jesus Christ, I mean a true relationship, going back to that same thing. The destruction of the temple, well, the first destruction of the veil of the temple was a sign of God's displeasure and uh, against the Jews for crucifying the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, it was also a sign of his displeasure with the Jewish people and not fulfilling their commitment. Uh, but that was, they were still given 40 years to accept Christ, to wake up and try to better understand. And when they refused to do that, that is the Jewish rulers, when they refused to do that, 
then God allowed the Romans to destroy the temple, which was their sign of God's presence with them. You see, many of the Jewish people had a wrong understanding of their relationship with God. Their relationship was to be a light to the nations, as it says in Isaiah chapter 49. They were to be a light to the nations, and yet they would, uh, they didn't accept that, and they became a very exclusive community unto themselves. That was one of the major disappointments between them and God. So, unfortunately, I'm getting off track here. But, uh, did that help you? Okay. All right. Any other questions? All right. Well, I'm leaving you spellbound. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, another thing that I'd like you to kind of look at is the divisions of this series of lectures here. Now, I didn't just arbitrarily pick out some dates. Those dates uh, are very important time periods within the church. The period from the time of Christ's death, around the year 30 to 33, we are not certain, and that's a totally different subject, to the year 70 AD. Remember, there was very little written down. Towards the end of that period, yes, the, the apostles started to write the Gospels, and Paul started to write his letters. But remember, one letter took a long time to get circulated around to all of the churches. And therefore, uh, you might say there was almost nothing for them to go by. So the only thing that they could preach and teach was Christ's death and resurrection and the breaking of the bread, which is a reminder of God's presence with us through the Holy Eucharist. But that was enough for them. Again, they were so filled with the Holy Spirit that they couldn't stop talking about it. And as you'll see from the handout we gave you today, uh, in the back is a diagram of how Christianity spread uh, throughout the Mediterranean area by the end of the first hundred years. That's something that you can read, uh, you know, at home later. But it's important to see that these time periods, as listed here, are major time periods within the church. Various important things happen uh, in each one of these. As I've said uh, now several times, after 70 AD, Judaism was essentially destroyed in its structure. Not that the beliefs were destroyed or all the Jews were wiped out, but the structure. The high priest was, remember, the chief uh, official of Judaism. The high priest ruled in Jerusalem. Uh, that came about long before, during the Babylonian captivity. Uh, 
but because the monarchy had ceased to exist at the time of the Babylonian captivity, the high priest became sort of the temporal as well as the, as the spiritual ruler of the Jewish people from the end of the uh, 6th century BC down to the time of, of Christ and to the time of the destruction of the temple when the high priest and the priesthood of Judaism was wiped out. Judaism and its structure was virtually destroyed. It was tried, they tried around the second century BC, or AD, I'm sorry, uh, to reconstruct it, but Judaism never again became the force that it was uh, prior to the destruction of the temple. From that point on, Christianity virtually exploded throughout the Mediterranean area uh, and became a major force, but that set up a clash between the Jewish people uh, and uh, those Jews who became Christians. Remember, in the very earliest days, all of the Christians were formerly Jews. So there was a transition there. But for a while, they were accepted as just in a, uh, you know, sort of an odd bunch of people who were doing something that uh, the rest of the Jews didn't quite understand. You had the same thing earlier, a couple hundred years earlier, with the Essenes. The Essenes were a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish Congress, you might say, uh, but they moved to um, Masada on the Dead Sea because they didn't like the way that Judaism was going. And uh, they had a pretty good thing going there for a while. Anyways, well, yes, the, the Essenes were... Uh, a sect, you might say, within Judaism that was ostracized because they uh, dis disagreed with the temple rulers. And they were probably many of the first Christians. In fact, uh, there are many people who believe that John the Baptist was a member of the Essenes. Uh, we're not certain of that, and there's no way to prove or disprove it. So. You have to kind of take it as uh, a theory, okay? But I want to talk just briefly here about some of these time periods here because it's important that we understand uh, how things develop. After 70 AD, Christianity, as I said, exploded because there was very little op opposition except for the Romans. And the Romans uh, began to persecute the Jewish people uh, even before 70 AD, uh, starting with, uh, well, it's hard to say which uh, Roman Empire started it, but Nero was one of the, the worst. Nero was the one that... Uh, Beheaded John the Baptist? No. Yes. No, no. Beheaded St. Paul in Rome. 
around the year 67 AD and St. Peter about the same time. Now we know virtually nothing about why Peter was in Rome in the first place, but we do know that, uh, or we feel that that again was part of the Holy Spirit's uh, urging of Peter to go to Rome and give it the significance that it still has of being the center of Jerusalem, of uh, Christianity. They were both executed about the same time. Uh, we know a fair amount about St. Paul's death where he uh, was beheaded. St. Peter, we know virtually little about that. There is a lot of uh, speculation that he says he was he wanted to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus Christ his Lord was. Uh, whether that's true or not, we have no way uh, to know for sure. Okay? Uh, but it sounds like something Peter would do. Okay? You know, Peter always liked to stick his foot in his mouth anyways. Um, but he became a major force uh, in Christianity, and he became the head of the apostles by Christ's own commission himself. Remember, Christ said, uh, upon this rock, and he was referring to Peter as a strong individual. Well, Peter had to go through quite a bit before he became a strong individual, but nevertheless, eventually he did. Uh, but upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That was while he was uh, still uh, in the flesh, you might say, and uh, before his crucifixion. Later on, at just before he ascends into heaven, he then tells the apostles uh, that he would be with them uh, forever and that they are to go out and preach and teach to all nations, unlike the Jewish people who became an exclusive community, he, he, Christ, wanted his apostles to go out and preach and teach and bring in and baptize all nations, being a light to the world. Okay. So it's important that we sort of bring forward what we learned last week into what we have going today. Any questions? Yes? No, most of them uh, believe pretty much the same thing. I tell you, the Holy Spirit was really working overtime that first hundred years and trying to keep the apostles who did go out and start preaching and teaching on their own were all doing this preaching and teaching the same thing. Yeah, and uh, when uh, when you read uh, Paul's letters, particularly about the ten churches or the Decapolis, as it's called somewhere, uh, they are all pretty much the same. And in the Book of Revelation, you see where they began to uh, veer off from some of that, and uh, the Book of Revelation talks about those seven, I think it's seven churches in there, 
that are uh, somewhat criticized for steering away from uh, the single idea of Christ and the breaking of the bread. So uh, that whole time period is very, very difficult to um, talk about in specifics because there's so few records available. <laughs> but I think from that map on today's handout, uh, you can really see how things developed over a, a short period of time. But most of that is due to Paul's th three missionary journeys. Again, if you read Paul's letters, you will see that he had three major uh, missionary journey journeys uh, through Asia Minor, or what we call used to call Asia Minor, uh, Turkey primarily, uh, and Syria, and then a little bit of Greece. The other apostles we know very little about. Uh, I can give you some uh, brief concepts of what happened to each of the apostles. Would you be interested in that? All right. Okay. Now, says Matthew. Now, now then, and this is not in any, any particular order here. Um, Matthew was a tax collector, and we know a little bit about that. Um, but we don't really know much about what happened to him afterwards. Mark is not technically an apostle. He was a follower of St. Uh, Paul, uh, and he wrote his gospel based on what Paul, Peter and Paul told him. But he was not really a, uh, an apostle in the technical sense. All right, When I say that, there was only 13 apostles, the 12 that were originally chosen by Christ himself, plus St. Paul, who was chosen by Christ, but after uh, his death, Jesus' death and resurrection. Peter, we know, as I said earlier, uh, was crucified in Rome, somewhere around the year uh, 67 AD, about the same time as St. Paul. Luke, uh, we know very little about Luke. Um, he was not an apostle, uh, one of the original 12, but he was uh, a follower of St. Paul. And a lot of this, again, is in Acts of the Apostles. Let me go on to some of the others here. James. Now, remember, there were two James. One was the brother of St. John the Evangelist, and the other one we call, we call one, the brother of John the Evangelist, was called James the Greater. Uh, the other one is called James the Lesser, not because of anything, but it's because we don't really know much about uh, what happened to him. But James became 
the Bishop of Jerusalem, the James the Greater, the son or the brother of John the Evangelist, became the Bishop of Jerusalem. Remember, most of the apostles spread out and went in other directions, with the exceptions of Peter, James, and John, and the and the apostle uh, Paul. Paul went in all kinds of directions, but came back to Jerusalem, where he was arrested and then kept in prison for two years, and then uh, he requested uh, a hearing before uh, the emperor of Rome, and therefore he went to Rome, where he stayed for another couple of years in uh, sort of a house arrest where he was allowed to write and move around a little bit, but eventually he was beheaded. Andrew says, uh, Andrew might have, might have been martyred in Achaia or Petrae. Both of these are places in the western part of Greece. According to the Catholic Encyclopedia, it is generally agreed that he was crucified by order of the Roman governor uh, and that he was bound, not nailed to the cross, in order to prolong his sufferings. The cross in which he suffered is commonly held to have been the uh, decusset, I never heard of that word, the decusset cross, now known as St. Andrew's though the evidence of this uh, view seems to be no older than the 14th century. Well, you know, something made up in the 1400 years afterwards, you have to kind of worry about that. The decussed cross, according to uh, this uh, little picture here, is where the legs and the arms are spread out and uh, tied uh, to the frame of the cross rather than nailed. Bartholomew, there's a book entitled The Martyrdom, uh, Martyrdom of Bartholomew in which this apostle's tale is told. Again, this is a tradition and a legend, but it is in keeping with what one would expect from an apostle of our Lord. And when he had, uh, had thus spoken, the king was informed that this God, and this is repeating some stuff here, which I won't go on and on about. Most of this is speculation. Okay. We don't know. All right. uh, Thomas. This is Doubting Thomas. It seems that Thomas, having once doubted the risen Lord, was in the end no doubter at all. Remember, he's the one, the first one to say, my Lord and my God. History tells us that he made a brave uh, death and he was thrust thrown from the pine with pine spears, thrust through with pine spears, then tortured with red hot plates on his body and finally burned alive. He would not deny the risen Christ. Philip, Philip Evangelist, now there was two Philips, there was a Philip the the apostle, and then there was the Philip later, a deacon. 
We know very little about Philip the Apostle. He evangelized in uh, Prigia, which is part of uh, Turkey, where hostile Jews had him tortured and then crucified upside down. Some sources have him being stoned. Uh, so, again, I don't like to put a great deal of of time into what happened to these apostles because most of it is legend or speculation. Uh, James the Lesser, son of Alphaeus, according to Fox's books of martyrs, was beaten, stoned, and clubbed to death. In another account, in order to make James deny Christ's resurrection, men positioned him at the top of the temple for all to see and hear. James unwillingly, uh, unwilling to deny what he knew to be true, was cast down from the temple and finally beaten to death with a fuller's club to the head. Now see, it's giving you two ways that he died because there, you know, there's no firm proof. So you got to be very careful when you read some of this stuff because it's all kind of speculation here. And so I, I don't really want to spend more time on that. And that's why I didn't bring it up uh, before this. Let's go on. During this second period of time, which I call the persecuted church, because the church was persecuted off and on, um, not continuously. There were periods of peace and calm. All right. Uh, the Acts of the Apostles even tells us that there was a church was at peace. Well, yes and no. It was at peace, but it was always on guard because the Jewish people themselves. Remember, if you think about in, in present day, uh, we have a number of uh, radical Muslims who feel that they've got to kill anybody who's not a Muslim uh, because they are desecrating or uh, defaming Mohammed. Well, the Jewish people at the time, uh, particularly after Christ, got into the same kind of mindset and took it out on their own people who turned you know, to Christianity because they felt that they were desecrating uh, the law, you know, the Mosaic law, and they were disobeying what God wanted. Well, they weren't very faithful to what God wanted in the first place, and the Christians were then favored by God, uh, as we know later. Right. So you had a lot of this back and forth, back and forth type of thing. I want to go on because the period after 70 AD, all the way up to the time of the Edict of Milan in 313, is a time when the church was pretty much an underground church because of the because of the uh, constant threat of persecution either by the Jews in Israel or by the Romans elsewhere. Right. Now, this is the time of the catacombs. 
Has any of you ever been in a catacomb? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, you know then that these are just underground tunnels. Uh, some of them, though, were decorated and some of them were very large and used as meeting places to hold the breaking of the bread ceremony. Remember, originally right after Christ died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the Jewish people who accepted him and continued on using uh, the words of consecration were offering the bread and the wine up at their own evening meals. It became just part of an evening supper and they continued to be uh, faithful Jews. Well, that got a little out of hand when the Jewish officials knew what was going on. And so gradually, uh, it became a separate ceremony. And once they get into the catacombs, it was held entirely separate. So that what we call the Mass today, the celebration of the consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ was all that they could really teach because <clears throat> there was nothing else. When the letters of Paul began to be circulated, they added those. But originally, they followed the same Jewish format for the evening offering uh, that the Jewish people had. They tried to remain as faithful Jews. But gradually they were forced into a separation and it wasn't until after 70 AD uh, the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the structure of Jerusalem uh, that there was a definite separation of Christianity and the Christian people from Judaism. Particularly once the door was open to converting Gentiles. Why they? Uh, when they started converting Gentiles, that did it for the Jewish people in general. Uh, now, the Gentiles were anybody other than a Jew. Didn't make any difference what your faith and religion was prior to that. If you accepted Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior, you were then follow, a follower of Christ and the idea of being uh, a Gentile didn't make any difference with uh, one exception, that there were a number of well-meaning Jewish people who converted to Christianity but felt that when the Gentiles were being accepted, into Christianity, they had to become Jews first and follow the Jewish laws. And the men had to be circumcised. Whoa. That became a major, major problem. Obviously, you can understand why. Okay. And when you read the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, you'll see what the outcome was. Finally, it got down to the point where all of the leaders of Christianity had to get together 
and they did so in Jerusalem uh, to iron out this problem. Did the Gentiles who converted to Christianity have to become Jews first? And to make a long story short, <laughs> after a lot of fighting, in fact, Peter and Paul got into quite a Donnybrook. Uh, I don't know how you would say that in Yiddish. but uh, Nevertheless, they got into quite a brawl there. And the outcome was, and Peter followed it, that they would, the Gentiles would not have to become Jews or follow the, the Jewish law because it had become virtually obsolete. Not the major parts of uh, the Ten Commandments, but a lot of the uh, other rules and regulations of Judaism were no longer valid or necessary because they had been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We go back to this little diagram here. Uh, just as a tree starts to sprout and show signs of becoming a tree, the roots remain underground. And yeah, some of them try to put their head uh, slightly above ground, but for the most part, they remain underground. All right. And in this case here, we have a lot of the carryover of Judaism into Christianity, and we still use that today. <coughs> Excuse me. Going on, though, the time of, the, of this period between the destruction of the temple and the Edict of Milan here, little over two years, 200 years, uh, was a, a tumultuous time for both sides. The Jewish people really kind of lost all sight and all hope because God really abandoned them uh, as a nation. He still wanted them to become Jews, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Christians, but uh, they lost sight of that. Uh, the Christians increased, and particularly they became pretty much a uh, Gentile community because after the destruction of the temple, there weren't a lot of official Jews willing to accept Christianity, and therefore, as Paul puts it, he lost hope in trying to convince the Jewish people that Christ was the Messiah, and therefore he said he washed his uh, hands of them and was going to go try to convert the Gentiles only. And that's what he did. Peter remained pretty much in charge of the local church in Jerusalem uh, and uh, ministered to the Jewish converts. Later on, as time went on, we developed a number of very important people who we look upon, we look upon 
as being the early theologians. Uh, St. Clement. St. Clement was the third successor to the role of the Bishop of Rome uh, after Peter. Uh, St. Uh, Ath uh, Athanasius. Um, oh, there's a few others uh, that were very instrumental, but at the same time, there were a number of heresies beginning to develop because remember, very little was written down and disseminated. Their theology was not really uh, written out in, in a structured form for people to do anything about or to learn from. Uh, there was no way to uh, get multiple copies of anything. That became a major um, problem again when there became too many uh, copies available at the time of the printing press developing in the 15th century, but I don't want to get ahead of the story here. Uh, there's so much that is we need to really talk about in this period uh, that I call the persecuted church. Uh, we had a number of saints come along in that to guide us and direct us. Um, but it is something that had to crawl very uh, slowly because there was just no way that the people could openly uh, evangelize. And yet, as we know, they did anyways. And so they left, they worked on the outskirts of the Roman Empire that if you go back to that diagram or that map, you see that most of the conversions, that is that sort of dark yellow area, most of the conversions are as far away from Rome as possible because there Paul and the rest of the apostles uh, had a little bit more freedom in those areas than they did in Israel or anywhere near Rome. But there was a number of people other than the apostles, you have people like uh, Priscilla and Aquila who went to Rome and uh, did evangelize a number of people there. <coughs> Pardon me. But most of most of this evangelizing was from the efforts of St. Paul on his uh, three major missionary journeys. And again, that's throughout Paul's letters uh, talked about quite a bit. Uh, now, if you look at this map, you'll see that there are two, two series or cities named... <laughs> <coughs> Antioch, excuse me. You have one in Syria and then one in Turkey. Antioch. 
A-N-T-I-O-C-H, all right? You see that? Uh, it is the one in Antioch that became the center of Christianity uh, after the death and resurrection of Christ and the, the greater persecutions. Christ actually predicted that in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. He predicts that they would experience persecution and that they were to leave the area. Well, part of that had a good effect as far as, and a bad effect, of course. Persecution at any time uh, is bad. But what it did was it caused the converted Christians or the new Christians to move out and share their beliefs with the people that they met in their new surroundings. And so that is how Christianity uh, spread out. And why? We talked briefly last week about Hellenism. And this is somewhat important. Hellenism was not a religion. It was a culture, a Greek culture that was sort of imposed on all of the conquered areas that Alexander the Great back in the fourth century BC conquered as well as some of his followers afterwards. And they tried to um, get everyone to follow a culture of, let's see, it's hard to describe a, a culture that was promiscuous in many ways, but it also uh, was very high on education, uh, on pleasure, on delights of all kinds, and it really was a improvement over the lifespan of the Jews. However, it was also involved with paganism. And yet many of the people outside of Israel adopted this Hellenistic culture. Part of it was then made easy, or because of it, uh, it was easier for these people to accept this new idea because they had everything but a faith or a religion that they could really understand and hold on to. Yeah, there was a lot of Greek mythology involved, but they realized that that was just mythology and not something that they could really uh, hold on to. So when Paul started to uh, preach and teach throughout Asia Minor and uh, southern Greece, these people accepted that with a great deal of enthusiasm. And that's part of why and how uh, Christianity spread so far in the first century AD. The heresies. I want to get into talking about this, and I think you have a listing of the heresies here. Now, what is, what is a heresy? It is where you take a certain belief 
and you twist it around to make it something that is more palatable or understandable or uh, acceptable, whatever. Right. And in the first 300 years or so, there were a number of heresies developing uh, that had to be put down as quickly as possible. But in that time period, nothing happened very quickly. Transportation and communication was almost non-existent. Um, it took months for things to get uh, spread around. Whereas today, you know, it's instantaneously, uh, but not at this time period. Uh, I don't want to go through all of these and, and try to explain them. I've only given you just very bits, minor bits of information here, but uh, you can look at some of this uh, at home, and you, if you need more information, you can look it up. There were other heresies that those written here uh, of a lesser nature. Many of them were just variations. But these are things that became a serious problem, and most of them had to be put down uh, by the church. But because the church was not allowed to function openly, uh, many of the heresies got a rather uh, strong hold before the first of the ecumenical councils, which didn't happen until 413 AD, but that was long after the Edict of Milan freed uh, everybody in Rome and the Roman Empire to practice religions whatever they wanted. But most of that was uh, directed towards Christianity because Constantine uh, and his mother became uh, sincere uh, and devout Catholics. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. Yes, Dick? In the second heresy, you start off, most of them are vicious. Yes. Most of them. How do a man become a bishop? Well, oh, that's a good point. Dick just asked how or who were the bishops. Let's put it that way. I'll talk in general. Um, when the church began to develop a structure, very, very basic, rudimentary structure, the apostles were considered bishops, and the apostles immediately, uh, their immediate successors, were considered bishops. But then that's, in, again, in the Acts of the Apostles, it tells us that there weren't enough bishops to handle all of the work of the church. And therefore, they uh, ordained deacons. So they had seven deacons ordained, one of them being Stephen, another was Philip, and so forth and so on. So the church structure was bishops and deacons for a number of years until the population, the Catholic or Christian population, got so large 
that they had to start calling on others. In the meantime, monasteries began to be developed. And this is more in the next time period rather than in the one we're talking about now, but it's worth talking about here. <clears throat> monasteries began to be developed. The development of the spiritual life of those who accepted Christ became such that many men and separately women wanted to come together as a community in monasteries. And so I don't remember who was the first of the great uh, monasteries, but you do have many of them. St. Benedict is the one that is most mentioned, but he isn't exactly the first one. All right. <clears throat> um, they began to use some of the monks within the monastery in the priestly form that eventually was developed. So it was bishops only. And remember, uh, as far as forgiving of sin, the sacraments weren't developed yet during this time period, but it was the bishops who were the only ones that for, could forgive sin. Um, and that would be pretty much like a personal confession between the bishop and the penitent, and the bishop would give a penance, but many of those were extremely exaggerated. Uh, sometimes it would take years of reform of some kind before absolution could finally be given. Uh, the other way that uh, people who confessed their sins were told to stand outside of a church community and ask for forgiveness from all the community before they could go in. Uh, that was quite a common thing. So there was no formal or formality of the sacraments developed until a much later period. So for a bishop, then they would say, well, okay, you're going to be the bishop of this. Yes. The other bishops would say you're going to be. Yes. There was, they all got together. And you'll see this if you read chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles, how all of them came together to make this decision as to whether or not uh, the Jewish converts, or rather the Gentile converts, uh, had to go through the Jewish uh, rituals. Um, and that's true for virtually all of, of the decisions. The the uh, gathering that is described in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles is often called the prototype or the, the first non-ecumenical council. It is not listed among them because there is no documentation. Uh, the first council of that kind of the whole hierarchy of the church is the Council of Nicaea, which developed the Nicene Creed that we say every Sunday and at other times. Um, and they met in Nicaea, and most of these councils go by the name of the location. Okay. And many of them are very important. Uh, uh, but some of them um, 
are not considered ecumenical councils. That term was not developed until around the 10th century. Yes. Uh, no, they well, yes, in a way, they were they were deacons or unofficial uh, bishops. Yeah. See, when Paul talks about them, it was too early to give any. There was no structure, and that became a problem in itself. Uh, that's why they started afterwards uh, with the ordaining of deacons. The deacons did a lot of the work that deacons do today. But they could not say mass. Uh, they could not consecrate the bread and wine. Uh, they could not uh, give absolution. Deacons can baptize even today. They can uh, officiate a wedding and a funeral. But they still cannot say mass, uh, which is the consecration of the bread and wine. Uh, they could not hear confessions. I'm off track well, a little bit, but any questions about this time period? It is difficult to give you a lot of direct scenarios because there, for, there isn't any. There is no writings about what everyday life was like. Uh, there was no writings about what their mass was like because there wasn't any written down. There just isn't any available. The mass structure, as I said before, was partly a, an absorption of many of the writings of Judaism, which we still have today. The first reading uh, of the Mass is primarily from the Old Testament. That hasn't changed a lot. Uh, pretty much the same. The, as Paul's letters began to be circulated, and some of the others, they were added along when it was appropriate. But you have to understand that structure was just not developed. It wasn't because it didn't want it. It was that it didn't know what to be done. And again, this kind of goes back to uh, the idea that God doesn't want uh, a lot of fanfare. He wants relationship. He wants it to be between you and me. You, 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 and you, and God. And if you don't get that, then you're not going to really understand. And when you do really get it in your head, it doesn't make any difference. So I, I, I can't go any further than that. As time goes on, there's a great deal more writing available to give you some ideas of how things develop. But in this early stage, unfortunately, there isn't um, even this. I'd like to read just a very brief portion. I uh, just hope I didn't lose my place. <clears throat> as far as when did the church officially begin? It says the, the resurrection of Jesus was the starting point of Christian faith. The idea of resurrection had already appeared in Judaism during the second century, yes, because Elijah rose a person from the dead. But Christians found their faith in resurrection giving new clarity 
and certitude through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They first gave a voice to this faith in the various brief formulas, such as we find in the first epistle of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried in accordance with the scriptures, that is, the Jewish scriptures, rose on the third day. Then another area, it says, the Acts of the Apostles pictures the church itself as only beginning with a Pentecostal explosion of the Holy Spirit on the first Pentecost Sunday. Well, that's true. That's one way of looking at it. But I still maintain that Christianity had its roots in Judaism, and you can't ignore that. And that is why we still use a lot of the Jewish scriptures in our liturgies. Are you getting something out of this? Oh, I'm sorry, Mike? Well, uh, you see... The yes, they were. Everybody was celebrating right. the Eucharist, and it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you got a good point. It wasn't uh, considered an exclusive right of the bishops. Anyone who believed in the early early days could do it. See, it was not the exclusive right of a bishop or later of a priest as it is today. In fact, the sacraments were not defined until around the 10th century and not really written down in a documentary way until the Council of Trent in 1545. So you see, it took 1,500 years for the structure that we have today to be developed. It came about little by little, and we'd be horrified if we heard somebody said mass in their homes with, you know, their own bread off the table and, and uh, a good bottle of wine. Uh, but that's the way it was in the early days. And they were glad to do it. And I'm sure the idea was accepted by God uh, as much as it is today. But the structure was not there. Yes, sir? After St. Peter's death... Uh... Okay. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time, confusing as it might be, but we have to admit this was a very confusing time in the life of Christianity, in the life of the people that have followed you. Help us then to spend some time with you trying to understand. And we ask that your Holy Spirit help us as well. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.